have your Bibles. We're going to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint, also they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caper berry has no effect. For the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, and mourners will walk around the street before the silver cord is snapped, and the gold bowl is broken, and the jar is shattered at the spring, and the wheel is broken in the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all eternity. This is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. All right. So, uh, hey, good morning, guys. Uh, so if you're, if you're just joining us, uh, we've been journeying through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and, um, and, and if you're looking for kind of a summary of, of what we've been talking about, that, that was it right there. Um, the teacher is like this, this man in this video, and, and in, he's in despair, and he's at the end of his rope. I don't know if you guys caught the imagery, but he is, he's walking in the beginning. He's slow, and, and his pace gets faster and faster and more frenetic and more wearisome and tiresome. And he's exploring every avenue that there could possibly be to find enough satisfaction, fulfillment, hope, meaning, value, purpose. And at the end... Exhaustion and despair. So, so if you are if you've been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, or you go back and look at it again, you can kind of see that that consistent increase in the futility of what is going on, and that that struggle and and. And it's important for us to see that because the struggle of the teacher, the struggle of, of, of that constant pursuit is the pursuit of all humanity. All of us experience this same drive and movement towards, towards something that matters, something that, that means more than what I know All around us, like all of us, we encounter different pleasures and possessions and powers that promise us salvation. 
that entice us and claim to fulfill the one hope that every human being has. And that hope is glory. And by glory, I don't mean pride, right? The glory of pride. I don't mean like some luminous glow. Like that's not our goal is to be just bright, shining objects. By glory, I mean acceptance. I mean that when we stand before that ultimate judge of everything, when we are examined, we shall find approval and love and delight in who we are. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, and he says, we should uh, hardly dare to ask that any notice be taken. Is that slide up there? I think we do, Lewis. There it is. We should hardly dare to ask that any notice be taken of ourselves. But we pine. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers. The longing to be acknowledged. To meet with some response to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. <clears throat> we are glory-starved creatures. And so we carry this burden of glory, and, and we cast our cares upon the false saviors that promise to alleviate this burden and carry us to acceptance. And yet the weight does not leave. Because as good as these pursuits are, they are bad saviors. I mean, my wife is amazing. She is wonderful but she makes for a bad savior. I, I have an amazing uh, calling career. I, I really enjoy my, my place of work. I do. But this makes for a bad savior, that job. Every accomplishment, every position of influence, as, as good as it feels sometimes, makes for a bad savior. Nothing can save, and by nothing I mean no thing. No created thing. Every door has been opened, every road can be taken, and the paradox still remains. And so we find ourselves today at the end of that road, where the teacher says, Hevel, Hevel. Everything is hevel, a vapor, a smoke that rises, that tantalizes us, that, that, that tempts us to grab hold and vanishes before our eyes, before we can even grasp. It's an unanswerable question. So, now that all has been seen and explored, now that every rock has been unturned, now that pleasure and possessions and power, apart from the gift, apart from their created intent, is revealed as a vapor, how does the teacher end? What are his final thoughts? We're going to get into that, but let's pray and then we'll, we'll explore that uh, in chapter 12 together. 
Yahweh, we, we, um, we, we sit here um, as, as people just like the teacher, just like this, 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 this author who explores, this is human of humans who, who represents us and our journey towards meaning and, and, and value and, and life. And, and I come to you as a human admitting and acknowledging the fact that I many times in my life have sought to find my hope, my comfort, my peace, my joy, something that lasts in, 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 in any number of created things. And I grieve when they fall short. Father, I confess that it's not because I, not because I was hoping that they would, because I knew that they wouldn't. And I, I am ashamed of where I have come. Father, we ask for hope today. That you would show us a better way forward. A path that doesn't lead to nowhere. May we find our hope. May we remember the creator. May we be mindful of the giver today. We thank you for who you are and who you always will be. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) All right, if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Very last chapter in the book. Ecclesiastes, remember, the name uh, Ecclesiastes is, is, uh, is Greek for uh, one who assembles, one who gathers in, who, who, like this, where they come and say, gather around, I, I have something to share with you in all of my travels and all my experiences. I would like you all to come near because I have something I want to share. And he, he gathers them in as an assembly, an ecclesia, in to share one final word. And the teacher says this, verse 1. So, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop and the women who grind grain cease because they are few and the ones who watch through their windows see dimly the doors of the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song Grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caperberry has no effect. For the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, and mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is Futile. Hevel. Hevel. Everything is hevel. That's the very first thing that the teacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. He ends where he begins. He knew the journey would end here. 
The teacher is demonstrating to us the, the futility of trying to find meaning in a fallen world apart from remembering one's creator. But he is also affirming life and, and, and he resolves this tension at the conclusion of his journey by, by us reminding us, hey, don't forget about your creator. The futility that the book of Ecclesiastes exposes is that when you're trying to find meaning while embracing at the same time a, a human autonomy, autonomy in a world that depends at every point on a creator, you will find yourself in a paradox with questions without an answer. What I mean by that is, is, is if you, as a human, decide to, to go and say, the answer will be found within, within me. All of this riddle. I can answer this problem. I don't need a creator. I will be the, the author of my own faith. I will be the, the, the producer of my own hope. I will solve my own problems. This is the human of all humans. Uh, uh, the, the, story, uh, the, 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 the passage is riddled, if you, I don't know if you thought about it, with all of these things about um, a, a man who, who gave many proverbs who is the son of David, this ruler. It is, it is this man, Solomon, who explored every avenue of, of wisdom and wealth and, and, and pleasure and everything. I don't know if you've read the story of Solomon. What happens to Solomon in his old age? He pursues idolatry. He worships other gods. In his old frailty, he loses himself in the pursuit of autonomy. Wisdom and wealth and, and power envelop him. He doesn't end remembering the creator. He forgets his creator at the end of his life. His life ends exactly the way the teacher says, hevel of hevel, everything is hevel. In, in this last word from the teacher, what he ultimately has to do is surrender himself as the focal point. That hope for meaning might come from himself and his pursuits of pleasure and possession and power because when all of the focus is on himself, he knows that apart from the giver, the one who gave everything, all of it can be deconstructed and stripped of meaning. Does a book have purpose apart from its author? Or... Does a written work owe everything to the author who gave it life and value? The teacher says we are, are there's something within us that drives us to be books without authors. To find purpose in, in, in life in ourselves without the benefit of the one who writes the words pens to paper. If there is one suggestion that the teacher makes, it is to remember the author, the creator, the giver. Before everything goes dark, before that which is created to be beautiful becomes ugly to our eyes, before the strong man becomes weak, before sight becomes blind, before security becomes Terror before hope becomes despair. And so the teacher ends his pursuit apart from the creator the same way it began. Hevel, hevel, all is hevel.
Tim Keller writes this. He says, uh, every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our, our heart's fundamental allegiance and hope. But, the Bible tells us, Without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, that object will never be God himself. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. And so the teacher dies. From beginning to end, life, breath, work, money, relationships, all of it is like a mere breath, a vapor that rises and vanishes in an instant. So that's it. Um, we'll see you guys next Sunday. And uh, no, 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 no. There's, that's not the end, right? The teacher, the teacher dies, and so his story, in a way, ends with despair. It, it does. But is that the end of the story? Is that all that humanity has to look forward to? For the teacher, the answer is yes. But, but just wait a moment, because there's one last voice that we have not heard from in a long time, and he's speaking up right now. Because as the teacher ends, someone else picks up the message. It's the author of Ecclesiastes. We have not heard from him except for the very, very beginning. What is the very, very, chapter 1, verse 1? It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's not the teacher speaking. That's some other person who's speaking there. The words of the teacher, son. He introduces the teacher, and then he backs up. And he lets another man speak. And he's been silent all the way up until this point, chapter 12. And it's, it's like at, at this point of the story, after all has been said, it's like the, the, the author can't contain himself anymore. He's like, I, I've heard everything you've had to say. I've got to speak now to somehow resolve this tension and reveal that there is more to the story. So this is what he says, verse 9. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. He's saying this wisdom that was given is good. It's, it's valuable. It points us in the right direction. Continue to heed their words. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. So stop reading books all the time, guys. Right? Is that what it's saying? Well, not entirely, but what it might be saying there is to say, you can find all of your, you might feel like you can follow all of your answers from the reading of books, and you can become prideful in how much you have studied and learned and known. And your faith in, in a, a, a God becomes less of a, um, a personal relationship with him, and it becomes more of the relationship of old dead white guys who have come before you. Much study can weary the body. Basically says this. When it all comes down to it, all that has been said, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil.
So, so where are we, where, where do we stand after everything has been stripped apart and pulled away from us, after every human pursuit, after any creative thing tends to end in, in paradox and futility? Where, where do we go from here? What does it mean to be human? The author says this. This is what it means to be human. Fear God. And keep his commands. That's what it means to be human. Fear God and keep his commands. That is the reason for existence. You want the fullest extent of human experience? You will find it in these two commands. To, to experience humanity and everything that it has to offer. To be, to be human in the, the fullest most originally and created way, fear God, keep his commands. Just that. That's it. There's, there's nothing else but that. Now, that's nice, but what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to keep his commands? Well, there's two parts of that, so let's break it down. First, to be human is to fear God. Now, does that mean that God is scary? Is God a monster that threatens our existence? Is he some maniac pulling strings behind a curtain that makes us miserable and scares us into submission? I, after reading the Bible, I would say the answer is no. That is not this God. That is not Yahweh. What he means is that at the extent where we come up to our limits as human beings, God does not experience those limits. Where we are incapable, God is capable. Where our limitations end, God is unlimited. And where we find ourselves impotent, God is abundantly powerful. So that means that our lives and our livelihood hangs in the balance of the Creator. It means that the one who gave Everything can take it away just as easily. It means that the God who created all things can, if he needs to, destroy it all. By flood, by fire, by famine, by earthquake. We have stories of that in Scripture. And, and I'm... I, we, I, I, don't, I don't say that to, to, to scare you, but at the same time, to, be in, to encounter a being that is, at the very least, capable of doing that, who is that holy and that just and that pure and that fair, ought to terrify. It ought to terrify us. The fear then that we have is this. To know that God is God. And I am not. To fear God, in other words, is to understand God. And to understand God is to know God. And here's the, but here's the, the, the twist. Because to know God is also to love God. That despite the fact that he, we know he is capable of taking away every good gift that is under the sun, he still continues to give good gifts. He still continues to reign, to, to reign uh, provide rain and, and nourishment on the just and the unjust. 
because we know he can end us right now if he wants, and yet he doesn't. He continues to reach out to his creation, to call out to us and even to save us, not with terror, but with kindness. To be human is to fear God. Now, second, to be human is to keep his commands. So, what does that mean, to keep his commands? Does that mean that we are not human if we fail to obey or comply with every single law and every single rule? Does that mean that we will only experience humanity if we are really, really good moral people? What happens if we stumble at one point and we're guilty of everything? We've already seen that with the pursuit of power, that perfect achievement and accomplishment is trying and frustrating, and it is a tireless job. So how are we supposed to do this? When he says to keep his commands, he's, he's not saying. We have, this, we have this, uh, this word, if anybody's gone through follow, um, that, about surrender, and we say in, in follow that surrender uh, God does not call us to perfect surrender, but to absolute surrender. We are not, we do not, we are not called to surrender perfectly, but we are called to surrender absolutely. To keep his commands means that that, the one who gives the commands, we trust him. That's what that means. We trust the one giving the commands. We follow the one who, who we believe is taking us in the right direction. If you're a leader and there are behind and you are leading people into battle, what are you gonna do? You're gonna issue commands. Why? Because it matters between life and death. Your, your entire life is, is in the hands of this person who you trust will lead you to victory, who will take care of you, who is watching out for you. You trust in him. You follow him. To, to keep the commands of God is to say with our hearts, to admit, I don't have the answers. My rules and regulations, when I set the commands and, and for myself and when I make the rules to bring about value and acceptance and glory, I, I mess it up. I'm a fa- I fail when it comes to building the kingdom of me. It doesn't go well. So because of that, God, I'm going to do it your way because I, I'm going to trust that you're going to figure it out. I believe that. To fear God and keep his commands means that we recognize that we are in need of a divine change agent to bring about the glory that we hope for, to relieve us of this burden for glory. The teacher points out earlier in, in, in chapter 7 that, that he, is, he has not seen a man nor woman who is able to be fully righteous or, and sustain this burden. Chapter 7, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So the end of Ecclesiastes actually doesn't end in despair. It actually ends in hope. There is a hope in a divine Savior. Because there is not a created thing on earth that can bring us truer, deeper, richer, more powerful meaning. We come to the end of ourselves. And when we come to the end of ourselves, the only thing we're left with is hope that maybe there's another beyond ourselves. And that's how the story ends. Well, I should say that's how the book ends. Because the story is not over. 
The eyes of eternity, as he says in chapter 3, he says there is, there is a hope, but we cannot yet see hope revealed. All we know at this point is that God created the world and that the created things broke the world. And so therefore, only God can redeem the world and fix it. But how? How does God fix what creation has broken? Of all things, and of all the ways that he could, God sends a man, a human, limited by the same physical constraints, exposed to the same temptations and struggles, vulnerable to pain and suffering and even death. God sends a man to redeem the world. But, but hold on just a second, you guys say, like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I thought we agreed that no thing, no created thing, no human being has ever or could ever do this. And up until the time of this writing, yeah, that's true. No man or woman ever succeeded, all failed and fell short of the glory of God. So why would God send a man? Does not the situation call for a divine remedy? But God does not just send any man. He sends the only man who could possibly bear the weight of responsibility for all mankind to take it upon his shoulders. God sent someone who knew the heart and will of the divine so much that he could not be swayed by the promise of false saviors. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father, and is he himself God? The only way for a man to possibly break through the barriers that have so long cornered in humanity is for God himself to become man. For God himself to take on flesh and to to burst through those barriers himself. Jesus took on flesh and became fully human in every way, though still divine. Jesus came to earth in flesh and bone, in weakness and frailty and humility. Without the the human foundation and legacy that King David had provided his son, but with the ultimate foundation of divine love and trust and strength forged by his Father, Yahweh. Jesus was tempted like no other human being who had come before him. The Gospel of Luke in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4 says that Satan himself, the adversary, the father of lies, and himself a created being, approaches Jesus and tempts him with power. What does he say? He comes to him and says, you are hungry, Jesus. Why don't you make this stone into bread? Satisfy your hunger. He tempts him with possessions. He says, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off of this temple mount. And guess what? All these angels that you have who who come to you at your beck and call and disposal, they will fly down and pick you up and rescue you. Why don't you use your angels, Jesus? You have them. Why don't you use them? And Satan tempts him with power. He takes him up over the hill and he shows him the entire of the valley and he says, listen, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world, all of the authority and all of their glory if you would just simply bow down and worship me and give me authority. How does Jesus respond? At every turn, he remembers the creator. 
Jesus himself, being God, is not a created being. But he remembers his father, the creator. He, said, he, he rebukes Satan and he declares, man shall not live by pleasure alone, but on the word of God. That possessions are not to be abused and tested, and only God is deserving of all worship. And no measure of power can change that fact. He was subjected to all temptation. He endured suffering and hurt and encountered the same limitations and walls that we have, and yet he did not fail. Jesus was human Yes, but he also reflected the glory and truth of his Father clearly and vividly. And yet, the rest of humanity, like it had for the extent of history up until this time, and continues even to this day, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They became futile in their thinking and darkened their foolish hearts and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1. So we condemned Jesus and we put him to death. We in the exchange of truth for a lie, condemned Jesus, and we put him to death. But Jesus, in the fullness of man, and in the fullness of God, overcame death. Death, the one certainty of man. Do not all go to the same place. We shall return to dust and the spirit will be taken away. Death is the only certainty, death and taxes, that every human will encounter. Jesus himself experiences death and yet Jesus overcomes that death, the only certainty of man. He conquered the grave and disabled every power of evil and every false savior and every false deception of glory and brought us peace with God. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ 
from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. What Jesus Christ brings to humanity, what only Christ could bring is acceptance and worth and meaning and value. He, he took it upon himself. He sacrificed his own life so that we could have eternal approval and validation in the sight of God. Because at the end, there is nothing that we can do to meet this on our own. Nothing that we can do to measure up to the standard of glory. It is only through Jesus. While Jesus was on this earth, he encountered broken and, and hurting people. He approached blind and, and sick and weak and lame and, and marginalized, and he, he walks up to them. And without a word or a test or an examination of their merits, without first determining if they were worth it to him, walks up, he touches them, which would have been, by the way, forbidden in that time for many. He touches them. He shows compassion on them. He forgave them. He healed them. He restored them to communities. He gave them the right to become children of God, to be in relationship with the Father apart from anything that they have done, and to become fully human once again. In Jesus, we understand what it means to fear God and keep his commands because we also understand that, that in Jesus, we have seen what, a full, what, what the full extent of humanity can do, what one who is driven by the Spirit we know what that means because Jesus is the one who redeems us. In him we find acceptance and love. And there is nothing that we can do on our own, in our power, to gain it. It is given to us freely as a gift of grace. Through Christ we are loved and, and accepted and made whole. Through him we find the glory that we have been searching for, starving for. Through him we find the, the answer to the, the question, the, the paradox. And, and we find those, this way forward to live and move and have our being as we were always meant to experience it. And Jesus, he not only redeems us, he redeems everything. Paul says in, in Colossians that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, he, Jesus, reconciled all things to himself, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. And, and so nothing what we find is that without Jesus, nothing matters. But because of Jesus, everything matters. Just as, as, as the vapor of heaven can, will, will cast its shadow across all areas of life, so too does Christ claim all areas of life as rightly his. Christ doesn't just teach about the kingdom. He, he brings the kingdom to earth with his acts and even in his death. Because in death, he takes upon himself the full weight of all of that paradox, all of that futility, all of that, that, that struggle, that absurdity, and, and he... In doing so, he removes those things that have separated us from God. 
What does the road without all end do but keep us separated from the Creator? In Jesus, the, the road is, the door is unlocked. The road is straightened out. The paradox is answered. The vapor has been taken hold. Jesus opens the gate to entrance into the kingdom. He redeems everything. Jesus redeems pleasure because we no longer need to find ultimate satisfaction in bread and water. He is the bread of life. He is the unending river of pure, refreshing, living water. And so we can freely enjoy the good gifts of pleasure because we recognize the good giver who already accepts us as we are. Jesus redeems possessions because we no longer need to find our security and our rest in in them because Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So we can enjoy the the possessions that that God uh, gives us because we no longer have to find our identity in them. Because Jesus has already called us children of God. And so we can never be taken away from him. We don't need anything else. Jesus redeems power. He redeems power because we no longer need to be accepted on account of our worth. God does not say, approach me once you have earned the right. Approach me once you have done enough good, once you have proven yourself worthy. He deems us worthy because Jesus has done enough already. He has proven his worth And he calls out to us as an already accepted people. Instead, what God says is, enter the holy places. Come on in to the sacred space of divine human relationship. And he says, come in, come in, don't come in with timidity, come in with confidence. Come in with confidence because Jesus has opened a new and living way through the curtain of his broken and bruised body with assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with the waters of forgiveness and with hope because he who has promised glory and salvation is faithful and he has succeeded where all others have failed. Jesus ends Ecclesiastes' search for meaning. And he ends it with himself. There's no more looking. There's no more futility. There's no more more vapor. There's no more absurdity because Jesus has made himself known. He has come in the likeness of man and did not account count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on servanthood, and humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we we finish out our our series, uh, it's always kind of good to grab one thing to take with you to go. And and so what's that that practical step that we're supposed to take? What's What's the thing you're all supposed to go home with and work on this week? I only ask for one thing. I want one thing from you. It's one thing that I think is going to change your life. It's going to restore your purpose and your value. It's going to recover and redeem your existence for the rest of your time here on earth. I have one thing. Rest. 
Rest in Jesus. Rest in the fact that your worth is not the result of your work or your experience or your toys. Relinquish, surrender the hope of of false saviors in the pursuits that you have made to find meaning and find it instead in Christ because he he is offering it to you right now. No thing can save. But there is one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. So these eternal eyes that you would have, he asks you to turn them to him. Everything in the world will go strangely dim, but they will also glow bright with the promise of new creation. Where are the areas in your life that, that have been put into the place of Christ to become fulfillment and satisfaction and hope and, and security? Jesus is asking for you to, to surrender those so that he can take that place instead. Are you okay with resting in him? Or is there something within you that's telling me, I have to keep searching, I have to keep working, I have to keep running endlessly? I think Jesus is telling you to stop. To stop running, to stop pursuing, to stop chasing. And to just be with him. He already invites you in. He's already inviting you in. Um, we are going to finish with one more song. And um, I want to go back to what Paul said in, in Romans. That those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. The mindset of the Spirit is life and peace if you have the Spirit of God living in you. So my, my question is, do you, do, you, do you have that? Do you know if the Spirit of God lives in you? Are you able to rest in that? Do you, are, if so, do you need someone to, to pray with you, to walk through with you, to d- disciple you, to come alongside of you, to be, uh, I, I believe one, we're, what, as we sing, I, I want to invite um, uh, the, the, if you are just, if you are, want to make yourself available to pray with people uh, today, I want, to, I want to do it in the back corners there. Safe space, okay? Back corners over here. If you need prayer, if you need somebody to talk to about these things, ask these questions. Um, and, and I want, we don't have any like particular people that I want to send over there, but if you feel like you're supposed to go there to pray with others, would you just go make yourself available over there and be ready for whoever comes, Okay? Put up your hand and say, come talk to me, okay? Um, and and, I, and if, if you are one who is wrestling with this fact and saying, maybe you're a one who, is, who has been here at this church forever, and you've been constantly doing and being and, and, and fitting in all the stuff, and, and you're like, this is it, this is what I'm doing, I am a, I am a follower of Jesus, but you're following, um, maybe you feel like Jesus is walking too slow, Sometimes I feel like that. Jesus, is go- you're going too slow, Jesus. Like, like, get out of the way. Let me go. <laughs> I'm faster than you, Jesus. Um, I have to do this more. Maybe Jesus is talking to you to rest. Get, get behind. Get in line. Follow. Maybe you're, you're in need of that same rest. Maybe church is something that you have been doing, but there's lots of other things that you do and lots of the other things, and you're kind of hoping that some big compilation of all of those pieces gets put together and gives you what you need. What if Jesus is asking you to let those things go? Make yourself, find, it, find someone to talk to. And if now isn't the right time, find someone to talk to and ask them to lunch later. Ask me to lunch. I'll come out. I'll pay for your lunch. We'll talk. And maybe you're the person who says, I've been hearing this, I listen to you, Jesus, I get it, but the Spirit of God, I don't know. Surrendering to him, I I have no idea. What does that look like? Man, we would so love to talk to you. 
Let's spend our time in worship. Prayer warriors, people who minister, we're a family. You know who you are. Make yourself available. We're going to pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll sing together. Jesus, we, um, we look to you as the author. You are the author. You are the perfecter of, of faith. To trust, to, to know, to fear God, keep his commandments. The essence of what it means to have a faith is found in you. That we know who this God is because of you. That we know the path because we know you. Help us, Father, to trust, to let things go today, to live within the limits that you have given us, but to trust in you who are without those limits. That may we worship you in spirit and in truth. That may we trust you with our lives, with our hearts, with our emotions, with our words and our deeds, our actions, our relationships. May we hand everything over to you to trust in you, to walk in your ways. Would you rule over us today? Would you be the king over everything? You are good and your love endures forever. We just thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I just invite you to stand.